Before we get into the episode, I have to tell you about the simplest and best way to start mining Bitcoin, the Blockware Marketplace. Our new streamlined onboarding process means you can literally buy a Bitcoin mining rig and start mining in under 60 seconds. All of the machines available for sale in the marketplace are online right now at one of Blockware's facilities. You don't have to worry about lead times or finding a place to get your machine plugged in. Blockware has already taken care of that for you. You get to mine completely hassle-free. And if at any point you decide that you no longer want to mine, or if the price of ASICs increases and you want to capitalize on the higher value of your machine, you can list your rig for sale at any time and at any price. This platform has completely changed the landscape of hosted Bitcoin mining. And the best part is that this all takes place using Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. Get started today at marketplace.blockwaresolutions.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Blockware Podcast. This week, we have on the CEO of CleanSpark, Mr. Zach Bradford. Zach, welcome. Hey, thanks to be here. Appreciate it. Excited to get to chat with you. I want to start just talking about the origins of CleanSpark and what was it like transitioning from being a company that was 100% an energy company to being a 100% Bitcoin mining focused company? Yeah, you know, um, obviously that that was our origin. We we went into the space. Um, we were specifically focused on renewables, microgrids, and what we were doing is we were looking to build energy systems that created savings for end users. Um, you know, we were involved in the data center space, and you know, it actually became a very obvious move once once I got to understand Bitcoin. And, you know, Bitcoin is one of the few places where you can purely take energy and turn it into a revenue stream um, unless you own a power plant. Right. So we have our input, which is energy and our output being Bitcoin. And that output is simply energy coming into a server, um, creating, you know, for, for lack of a better term, you know, data processing or hash rate and, um, you know, that that was the the key piece because when you're selling savings there's only so much that you can create revenue for for that net savings right you're always capped and and that's that's what helped me you know make the leap and ultimately was what drew me to walking into the boardroom and telling the board hey we have this amazing opportunity and and we need to take it seriously and and make a shift um and frankly i was frustrated you know in the renewable space um, really, you know, a believer that we should leave the world a better place than, than we found it, but seeing inefficiencies, you know, in systems, um, seeing how, you know, an end user, they only have the lights on for a certain amount of time. They only use energy in certain ways. It's, you know, it's, it's very lumpy and, you know, the costs sometimes don't make sense and you have these extremely long paybacks. You can take all of that and when you apply Bitcoin to it, your paybacks are better. Um, it's a more direct, you know, and easy to measure energy use. Um, really felt that it was a better way to solve the problem. And, you know, with that, we've, we have, it took us, you know, 18 months to two years to make the full transition. But we, you know, sold off or closed the doors on the energy business. And, you know, now we're 100% focused on being an owner and operator of Bitcoin data centers. And, you know, it's it's been a monumental change, not only as, you know, uh, taking our knowledge and applying it in a different way. But I think it's, it was absolutely the right move for our shareholders as a public company. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting origin story. Do you expect other energy companies to start diving into Bitcoin mining more seriously? Do you think it'll be, you know, we'll see like the shells of the world really go all in on Bitcoin mining? You know, I, I think that they'll go into it as serving a, another business class. Um, you know, you think of the scale and magnitude of some of these energy companies, and then you start to compare it to, okay, you got the shell, which touches energy in a hundred ways. You have utilities. Um, and you have to think, even with the opportunity that Bitcoin has, you know, their businesses are so large and so complex. Are they really going to walk into their boardrooms and say, hey, we need to take a meaningful amount of investment invested into Bitcoin mining. I think that the move that makes the most obvious sense, and I think where the majority at least will go, is they will just look to attract Bitcoin miners to be, you know, not only customers, but to provide ancillary services to their networks and their grids. Um, I think it just makes a lot more sense. Um, and for better or worse, I think that you have to deal with the realities that, um, you know, in a utility, 
there's people that, you know, when you walk into the boardroom to fight for a new idea, ultimately they may have in the back of their mind, you know, no one's ever been fired for saying we should do what we did last year a little bit better. Um, as opposed to we need to take and really focus on a wholesale change of any kind. Um, it, it, that, that takes more grit and gumption. And again, for better or worse, there's a lot of people in a lot of positions at 200-year-old utilities that aren't, aren't in there to you know, reinvent the wheel. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When people say renewable energy, I think what most often first comes to mind is wind and solar. But at CleanSpark, you guys are huge on nuclear. Can you speak on that a little bit? And what are some of the common misconceptions about nuclear energy and why are they incorrect? Oh, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, it's kind of loaded in a few different ways. But, you know, ultimately maybe a better description of, of nuclear is carbon free, right? And that's ultimately what renewables are pushing towards. You know, the focus on renewable power is how to not create an end waste and how to not pollute the air. Um, and, you know, when you look at coal and, and some of the things of the past, that's what they, they did. They were big polluters of the air around them. And, and that's really where renewables have gone. Um, so if you look at nuclear power, there is an ultimate, you know, waste that comes from it. But that waste is so small, so minute and affects such a small um, amount of the environment after the fact that we consider it, you know, a, a clean power source. Um, and, you know, the Department of Energy also considers it and actually classifies it amongst the carbon-free or renewables. And so, the, you know, for us, that's what attracted us to go to Georgia, amongst many reasons, you know, cost reasons and, and all else. But, you know, from the beginning, coming from a renewable space where we did focus on solar and wind, um, we wanted to be there to, it, we wanted to use carbon-free power. But what you have is you have, you know, it's known as the duck curve problem. It's the intermittency of renewables. It's the fact that, you know, they're great when the sun shines and when the wind blows. Uh, but then they don't produce anything um, outside of those times. Nuclear, the reason that I believe it's a superior form of energy production is it's, the, it's a base load. Now, you wouldn't want to do your whole grid with nuclear power and baseload, but, but what you need is you need that as the foundational piece. Nuclear power plants don't rapidly turn up and turn down. Um, that's one thing that nu uh, natural gas does do. They can turn up quickly and they can turn down quickly on a relative you know, basis. So when there's a need that's a short-term need you know, for four hours in the middle of the summer, that's, that's actually a great purpose especially during this transition period of energy we're going through for natural gas, things like that. Well, the other 18 hours of the day, that's where nuclear power is at its strongest. It has a very flat um, cost basis. It doesn't have a lot of cost inputs. You put the fuel, you know, nuclear fuel rods in the system. They're good for years and years and years. And you're not always having to pump in something that costs money. Um, so it's better not only because it's a solid base load that's consistent, but also from a cost point of view. Um, yes, the facilities are very expensive to build and they take years, and so they have to recoup those costs. But from an input cost, you think of what happened you know, a, a little over a year ago when natural gas really spiked because of the issues and the shortages and what's going on over in Russia. And that was directly due to input cost. An input that was needed to produce power got more expensive. That's not something that happens in nuclear energy. So it gives us greater certainty from our power cost on a long-term basis that they will stay low. We're, we're also in the only state that's actively has built and continues to build reactors anywhere in the US right now. And so we, we've seen power cost and improve and get more stable um, as they turned on you know, one of the most recent Vogel plants. And there's another one coming and we expect to see continued improvements. And so there's, you know, I could talk, you know, nuclear power all day long, but at the end of the day for our business, it's about it being a consistent low cost and carbon free power source that has more reliability than intermittent renewables that are wind and solar. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned that you wouldn't want to do the whole grid with nuclear. Why is that? Because it sounds perfect, honestly. It does, and you, you could overbuild nuclear reactors and you could do the whole grid. 
what you would be left with is you would ground a portion of that power. So if you think about grid efficiency, you know, what you're really always trying to match is output and consumption, right? From a generation point of view. Um, and then you have to keep the whole system in phase, but we won't get into the details of keeping it in phase and out of phase, but let's just talk about economics, right? So if I overproduce um, at a generation side and people don't use it, then I ultimately have to take a portion of that and ground it. It goes nowhere. Or I have to put it into a storage system, right? Only a certain amount can, can just exist in limbo on lines, right? And, and there's, there's always a little bit of excess. We take it for granted when we turn the lights on. That was power that we're now using that wasn't being used before. So you have to have excess built into the system. But what you don't want to do um, is you don't want to run a power plant where only 50% of your power is being purchased. And, and I'm oversimplifying. And the other 50% is just grounded. Goes into the ground. Nobody buys it. You have to look and you say, hey, why did I build the plant this big? Why did I you know, produce this much power. So if you were a natural gas facility, you react to that just by turning off some of your generator sets and turning them back on when it's needed. There's some flexibility there. And so again, nuclear doesn't have that flexibility. When you turn a reactor on, you want to keep it running flat and consistent, you know, for very long periods of time. Um, you don't turn it up, turn it down. You have heat and all these other issues you would have to deal with. Um, so it's actually more efficient and more cost effective on the grid to have a baseload power source mixed with intermittent renewables paired with, um, you know, natural gas peaker plants or even base plants. Um, you know, I would still say that those could be, you know, replaced with nuclear on a long term basis. But but the reality is, is their cost economics need to be put into place. Otherwise, the ratepayer has to pay the delta for all that wasted power that would be grounded. So again, we all want effective grids. We also want resilient grids. It does make a lot of sense to build grid-wide systems that have a mixture of generation sets, especially at this point in time. I do believe you know, that uh, there is a clean energy future where the majority is renewable and clean and carbon-free. But I, I, I'm also a realist in the sense that I, it's going to take transition. And, you know, Bitcoin miners are, can lead to that transition. We can support it. We can be buyers of power now for systems to be built for tomorrow that support, you know, households versus just Bitcoin mines. Somebody has to pay for it. We're raising our hand to pay for it. Um, but you, you do have to have a balanced grid when you look at how, how the systems work and just basic economics. Yeah, that makes sense. I didn't, I didn't quite know that about grids. Couldn't you theoretically just the overproduce as much with nuclear and then Bitcoin miners just buy all of the surplus and maybe you don't need the other sources? You know, it, it, absolutely. On a theoretic basis, you could do that. You need enough Bitcoin miners, right, to, to do that. Um, you start to then get into geography and how grids are constructed and location-based and, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting things to consider. You know, right now, a lot of sites are built in what I'll call super sites. Um, you know, Riot's actually the, the, an example of this. They have two sites, extremely large sites. Um, well, now you have a transportation issue. If they were gonna use all that excess power, it better be produced somewhat nearby, right? And in Texas, you have the grid congestion issues is why that works. You know, my belief uh, on a long-term basis, and I should say, you know, we, we have large sites. We've avoided what I'll call the super sites. We are going to have one site that's going to be very large. Um, you know, we'll be finishing it, you know, first part of next year, and it'll be 230 megawatts. But we really want to spread out and have more sites spread across. That's not only a protection geographically from, you know, weather events, but it's just better for the grid. And so there's still 50 and 80 megawatt systems, but I, re I really think Bitcoin miners on a long-term basis, once we figure out remote operations better, there's, there's the reality where, you know, for every substation, there's a two megawatt Bitcoin mine that just takes off, you know, excess power balancing. Or it could even go for every neighborhood, there's, you know, a Bitcoin mine. We need to solve for sound issues, which immersion helps a lot for, and, we, and then you really have to be incorporated into the grid. I, I do think that mining centralizes on a, you know, near-term basis. 
on geographically and it decentralizes even further, you know, going into call it 2030. So th there's a lot of things, but you really have to think about, you know, geographic proximity to really solve some of these issues. Yeah, that that is an interesting set of trade-offs with the idea of just sort of putting all your eggs in one or two baskets and like mm -hmm. having these massive sites where with you guys, you have multiple sites across the state of Georgia. You mentioned that their openness to nuclear is why, part of why you were there. What are some of the other reasons why you really like the state of Georgia? Well, first, you know, Bitcoin mining thrives best in one or two environments. Um, first is abundance, which is what Georgia has. They're a, an excess producer of power. And so, you know, us coming there, there was already power available, power that was being sent across state lines, sold to other utilities. Um, we're now consuming it, but it's also a state, again, that was building generation. They, you know, not only the nuclear power, but they rank number seven for most solar um, uh, by state. So there's actually a lot of solar power. So there's an intermittent renewable, and then there's also the base load. Because they're a net exporter of power, power prices in the state of Georgia are, are low. So that's, that is a big reason that we are there. And they are set up to stay low because they're set to continue to be overproducers of power compared to the needs. Um, that, that fits really well. Just like you said, if Bitcoin miners are consuming all the excess power, it only means we're getting low-cost power, but it means all the other ratepayers are getting low-cost power too because they're not paying for the excess that goes nowhere. So we really saw Georgia as a win-win. Um, the other option, of course, is to go in a place where there's scarcity, but that that scarcity is very intermittent and seasonal, right? Which is the perfect example of Texas. A lot of wind, a lot of solar, but for eight months out of the year, it's, it's not highly used. You run into issues when you have big winter storms and when it gets very hot. Bitcoin miners are solving a problem that they are uniquely positioned to solve um, in the state of Texas for that. Um, and, you know, we have an interest in Texas, but instead we've, we've chosen to be experts on Georgia and really to invest in, you know, a, a state that we think is on the right trajectory for abundance. We think Texas does have some risks. And again, it doesn't mean we'll never go to Texas, but there's added risks that, you know, a law change or ultimately it gets overcrowded and there's too many miners trying to solve the same problem, you know, power prices don't go down in the same way. So we, we really like Georgia. We feel like we're, you know, becoming experts on the grid there. We understand kind of the power equation and we think we can do it better than anybody else. So um, Georgia is also, I will say, a place that if you don't understand, you know, supply and demand of how the Georgia grid works, you know, it, it could go sideways for somebody. So really being an expert on power is, is a requirement. So um, we, we felt we were uniquely positioned to take advantage of that. How have the, the local communities responded? Because I know you've got one or two sites that are in very rural areas. And, you know, how, how have going there and mining Bitcoin and providing these job opportunities, what's their response to that, Ben? You know, the, the key with this is how you start. Um, we've always gone in the front door is how we like to refer to it when we go to communities. Um, we interact directly with the communities. They know exactly what we're doing. They know how we're doing it. They know why we're doing it. And they understand how it's a benefit to them. Um, in rural areas, you know, we're very happy to provide the economic development that, that we do. Um, one of the cities that we're operating in, actually, their city budget has actually doubled since Bitcoin mining came to the city. Um, that's how much it's benefiting these small communities. So it goes beyond just the jobs we provide. And we do provide meaningful jobs, high paying jobs in areas where there's not a lot of opportunity. Um, but, you know, there, it goes beyond that. The sales taxes that we pay go into schools, they go into the roads. So we're very meaningful taxpayers in these cities. Um, and we think that's an important part of the equation that makes it a very cohesive relationship. Further, in all the cities we go in, we actually negotiate a cost plus model. So when we win, the cities win. And what I mean by that, for every kilowatt that we consume, we pay the cities directly, and it's a profit margin, um, a fraction of a penny on top of that. 
And so they have a direct revenue stream. It's not that they have to give us these fixed price agreements where they can win or lose in really big ways, but it creates risk for the community. Small communities can't, or they have difficulties managing risks of that type. So instead, we and our active power management strategy have benefited, you know, the communities in a very, very direct way. So again, it goes beyond the jobs. It goes into what impact it has on city budgets, what it means to the schools, what it means to infrastructure building, you know, things like that. But, you know, first and foremost, it's about being part of the community. Um, we, we never want to go in and, you know, fight a community to be there. If a community doesn't welcome us with open arms, then we understand and we'll go to the next one. And, and I think that that's a, a key thing that we really need the industry to always understand. You know, all the headlines you read, if you look at it, it's a lot of times because somebody, you know, built in a place that, you know, wasn't zoned or was close to somebody's house and it was noisy. You know, if we're going to be in a neighborhood, which we are in Norcross, Georgia, where there's there's housing complexes right across the street. We built immersion and it's quiet and nobody knows it's a Bitcoin mine. These are all things that need to be considered to be part of the community. Um, we shouldn't look to get, you know, sound ordinances passed in housing developments in order to have a noisy Bitcoin mine. That's that's not what we do and it's not what the industry should do. And that's how we've made a real impact. And frankly, that's why we have these good relationships in Georgia is because we're, we're the company trying to do things the right way. Yeah, that was really well said. And I, I respect that a lot. As someone who's from, I grew up in a rural county in North Carolina, I would love to see Bitcoin mining get embraced here. But we had in the western part of the state, someone did it the wrong way, right? They went there and they were super noisy. They didn't really come in maybe with the, the right intentions. And that county, I think they banned Bitcoin mining outright. And so I, I hate to see stuff like that happen and, and give a bad name for, for Bitcoin mining. You mentioned immersion. You've mentioned it a couple of times, especially as it relates to reducing noise. And these machines are also more efficient, right? Because uh, the way the, the liquid cooling is versus the air cooling. Can you talk about some of those trade-offs? Because if you're just looking at it on paper, you would think, why doesn't everyone use immersion mining? You know, how do you decide between going immersion versus air-cooled? Taking Bitcoin off the exchange and putting it into self-custody is a big responsibility. And if you're going to do that, which you should, you need to make sure your seed phrase is secure. Simply writing it down on a piece of paper is not the best way to go about it. All sorts of things can go wrong when you do that. You're going to want to stamp it into metal. Using one of Stampseed's metal plates, you can ensure that your seed phrase is immune to fire damage, water damage, and just general erosion that happens over time. Head to Stampseed.com and use the code BLOCKWARE15 for 15% off at checkout, and you'll sleep much sounder at night knowing that your Bitcoin seed phrase is stamped securely into a metal plate. Yeah, um... You know, there's definitely some trade-offs, and the main one is the cost of infrastructure up front. It's a much bigger investment to build immersion cooling facilities. Um, they're also more complicated in the sense that you really need to have software as part of your stack to get the full benefits. But there's also now you have pipes and plumbing versus an air-cooled facility. You have basically facilities maintenance and, you know, fans. So it's, a, it's just a more complicated process that requires more capital. Now, when we built our, our facility, we built it in two phases, even to learn from phase one to phase two. We built eight megawatts followed by 12. In the 12 megawatt section, we took things we learned in the eight and we got better at it. Um, we, we do feel comfortable that we're at a point that if we were to go deploy you know, 100 megawatts, 200 megawatts, we would be well served to do it the right way without making very expensive mistakes. We think that that's another reason, for us, that's been a big reason why we haven't adopted it in a bigger sense already, is because it is more complicated and more expensive. You need to get it right. Um, we're, we've been working really hard on developing so that um, we have systems that we can deploy that would cost the same as air cool. And that's really the threshold for us, is if we can build the site for roughly the same cost as an air-cooled facility, that's when you, you've really made it so it's a really obvious switch over. The other thing you have to consider is, you know, you take these machines and you take them apart to a certain degree and you put them into immersion. 
Um, you can't take an immersion-cooled machine and put it back into an air-cooled environment. So you're making a commitment with your machines when you, you put them in this environment, which again, we're very comfortable with, but we, you just have to know that that server will live to the end of its life in an immersion-cooled setting. So when you build this together, we've, we've moved cautiously. We've built a lot more air-cooled than we have built immersion-cooled. You know, it'll be 20 megawatts of 430 megawatts um, will be immersion-cooled when we're done with our 16 megawatt expansion uh, first part of this year. Now, what about the megawatts after that? Um, we do intend that the majority, I believe, the, our intention right now, as long as we can solve for just a few variables, we really want to focus on immersion cooling on the go forward. Um, so I would see our stack starting to shift to where, you know, future megawatts are, you know, majority, if not all, immersion cooled. We've also focused on the buildings we've built um, are really set up to where, you know, when the time comes and it's right, it, you know, let's say the next cycle we do a machine upgrade, we'll probably do facility upgrades too. Um, all the base electrical infrastructure should be well served to support immersion cooled also. Um, it does mean we'll have to make modifications and it would mean downtime, so it wouldn't be something we would take lightly, but we, we are planning for the future. There, there really could be a reality where, you know, five years from now, all of our megawatts are immersion cooled. Um, and we would, we would be able to do so without having to rebuild from the ground up. So the, these are all factors, but you know, they're, there's, they're all factors to, to take into account when you, it's at the starting line, right? Now let's talk about when it's into place. We are able to get 10 to 15% efficiency improvements on the machines that um, are immersion cooled. And that's really on a baseline basis, right? Um, that's gaining efficiencies while maintaining hash rate. Now, the reason that's important is, you know, in the bull market when, you know, profits were just massive, everybody wanted to talk about overclocking. It was about how hard can you turn up the machines so that your machine cost, you know, at the time, which were incredibly expensive, you know, has the highest output. But you have to recognize that the efficiency just falls off a cliff when you turn the throttle all the way up on these. It also can shorten the life of them. Our focus instead was how much efficiency can we turn out of this to have it make sense without losing the efficiency? Or even more importantly, what if we underclock them? How much can we turn down the, the, the wattage and still maximize the output? So on a baseline basis, we're 10 to 15% more efficient, a lot of flexibility to turn them down to gain more efficiency if hash price gets really squeezed. But then we also do have the flexibility to overclock, you know, when and if the time was right. But again, I think the efficiency, which is what pushes real dollars to the bottom line, uh, is what matters. Because, you know, from a top line basis, producing more Bitcoin is great. But if that Bitcoin produces a lower profit margin, you, you have to really measure the trade-off. So we're, we're actually more interested in baseline efficiency in those systems and extending the life of the, of the, the servers. Yeah, that makes sense. And it sort of goes in line with the way you manage your balance sheet also during the bull market, right? CleanSpark is notorious. I think it's what makes you guys really interesting is you weren't hodling during the bull market. You were you were selling coins and mm -hmm. you know might have got some heat for that, but it turned out to be a really good idea. Going forward, would you expect to implement a similar strategy in, in a future bull market? And I know obviously data can change and circumstances can change, but if you just had to guess, you think that's something you guys would likely do again? So my, my answer to that is what it always is. We're gonna always choose strategy over ideology, right? And the strategy can be multiple things, right? Um, it can be what shareholders value, which we decided was not the strategy to choose, right? There's a lot of people that were really banging the drum of hodls all that matters. Well, the reality is, is we felt what mattered is paying the bills out of revenue instead of paying the bills off of selling stock or getting into debt, right? Because those are the other two options. At the end of the day, you have to pay your power bill. And just like, you know, the gold miners don't just stockpile gold, they have to sell it to the jeweler who makes something from it in order to pay their workers and things like that. As, as a miner, we have three places we can get our capital. One is from a revenue stream, which means selling Bitcoin. The second is debt, and the third is equity. 
And it's about managing how you pull those levers. In, in this bear market, the debt lever doesn't exist. And anybody that pulled the debt lever in the, in the bull market, many of them went bankrupt or had to really struggle to get out of the debt. You know, everybody can read about, you know, even headlines two, three weeks ago about people having to manage their, their debt, other miners. Um, we chose to avoid the debt. Um, you know, the reason we started selling Bitcoin at the peak um, was because we felt the market had reached an irrational point ex explicitly on the mining side. The amount that people were paying for rigs no longer made sense from an ROI point of view. And so we started, that's when we, you know, my focus became deal hunting on the miners and not buying the latest and greatest, but instead focusing on the ROI, finding machines that would pay off, you know, within, you know, in under a year, which ultimately, of course, left us in a position, we had capital and we were able to buy the latest and greatest that pay off in the shortest amount of time. Um, we, we, that choosing strategy over ideology, whether it comes to HODL or anything else, capital management has positioned us in a place where if you look at our balance sheet, we have over 600 million in, in, ass, in assets. If you look at what that is composed of between the sites, the miners and so forth, um, we have produced a bigger fleet with less money by almost 100% compared to some of our peers. Um, and, the, you know, one comment on that, you know, sometimes analysts want to compare, you know, market cap to net asset value. And the net asset value is the value of, on your balance sheet. Well, if, if our assets on the balance sheet were purchased for $15 a terahash or $10 a terahash, and our peers were purchased for $100 a terahash, you know, their, their net assets may report higher, but they paid more for things that produce. Our focus is on capital management specific to create the largest output for the lowest investment to get the greatest bang for our buck for our shareholders. And, and I think we've done, you know, I, I may be speaking, you know, for a little bit, uh, you know, leaning to my side, but I think we've done a phenomenal job and I think we've done a better job than anybody else. Yeah, I definitely agree. You guys did a phenomenal job. And when I think about it, it's really just all a matter of risk reward. Let's say, you know, you sold your Bitcoin at 60, 69,000 and it keeps ripping up to 100,000. Well, you still have all your infrastructure, all your ASICs. You're going to be doing just fine. But the risk, if you continue to hodl and especially taking out leverage in that position when the market inevitably tanked, like that's just going to be a recipe for disaster. And it was a good point you made too about how when we're in the bear market, that access to debt at that point isn't there like it was during the bull market. So that's definitely another aspect to consider. Going forward, we've got the 2024 halving in just under seven months now. How are you thinking about that, both in terms of what it may do to the Bitcoin price? And then as a miner, what are you doing to prepare for that? Are you looking at like the S21 just got announced, uh, the M60 lines coming out? What are your overall thoughts on the halving? Um, I, first thought is I think we're already prepared for halving as a company. Um, and I think we're one of the few that are prepared. Um, you know, we're, we're building, you know, from the beginning, from 2020, we were building into what halving was going to mean to be prepared, to have a highly efficient fleet, to not be over leveraged and be pre prepared for both to survive and then to thrive. And I'll get into what I think that means from a Bitcoin pricing point of view. But I think that's the thing is, you know, if hope is not a plan. And unfortunately, hope is what many miners are relying on. Um, many miners, their strategy is dependent on Bitcoin going up and hash price increasing. Um, we're positioned that, you know, if you look at how the algorithm works and how difficulty works, we're positioned to be the last one to unplug. And that's what matters because, you know, miners that become unprofitable first you know, they can either choose two things. They can run at a deficit and hope that Bitcoin price goes up while digging a bigger and bigger hole, or they can turn off. And, and that's, that's it. Th those are their options. We're positioning our fleet to be amongst the most efficient in the world. And as a result, we'll be able to run through. Our margins may get smaller, um, but we're going to be just fine. Um, the only thing that we intend to do is, you know, we want to go into... Um, halving with 
you know, unleveraged free capital for many reasons, you know, from a war chest point of view, right? That means we can cover our cost, uh, you know, on, on an as needed basis if things get really tough. But again, we always expect to be producing on a profit. Um, but even more importantly, when other miners don't survive, um, we think that their miners may not be worth anything, but their facilities will. So we want to be positioned to continue to grow by acquiring other miners that had less efficient fleets, but had good infrastructure. Um, now, that's in a bear case. That means Bitcoin stayed flat or didn't go up and miners that, you know, weren't efficient didn't make it. You know, in a better sense, we, Bitcoin goes up, there's enough margin for everybody, let's say, including less efficient miners. Um, we will be positioned to have the, amongst the highest profit margins. So we're, we're positioned for both the bear and the bull case. Now, I think Bitcoin, you know, drives obviously the value of miners in the public markets and the, the public markets determine a lot. And right now, I think we're undervalued. I think that there's, you know, one or two that are overvalued, but I think that there's a lot of value being left on the table in the space due to uncertainty. I think the ETFs hopefully get approved next month. If not, they're going to get punted to probably January. Um, but I think that that's an important metric, not because of just the fact that I do think it will lead to an inflow of capital into Bitcoin, which will optimally increase the price of Bitcoin. But I think that that's the last step for Bitcoin to have the stamp of approval um, on a regulatory side to where there's institutions that now get exposure, not through ETFs, but they'll look to also get exposure to the secondary pieces, which will include Bitcoin miners. Um, and I think when that happens, the, there's a lot of value that will move into the space that we, we want to be well positioned to capitalize on. But I think all miners would, would want to be in the same boat, right? Um, and so I, I think that that's going to be the first impetus. And then I think going into halving, I, I don't think that the shift in Bitcoin price from a supply-demand point of view is going to happen upon halving. I think it's going to be like all other cycles. I think it's going to take a period of time, and it could be six to nine months until that supply-demand change is really felt. Now, caveat to that is, is how much are the ETFs really buy? How much do they really impact supply and demand? None of us really know, and I think, though, that there's going to be a two-stage impact. Impact supply and demand on the ETFs directly, and then follow-on supply and demand effects of halving. Now, uh, after halving, you, we do have to pay attention to macroeconomics, and I think the better macroeconomic environment, the better it is for Bitcoin. Um, but I think it's going to be good for Bitcoin regardless. I think that the cycle will prove true. I think we'll see another bull market on the other side of this. Um, and it just depends on how big or how small the bull run is. Um, but, you know, the reality is, is the minute halving occurs, we will already be prepared. And we're, we're already having conversations about how do we prepare for the 2028 halving. Um, because I think that that's going to be a harder halving to deal with than the 24. And so we'll, we'll be making plans for how do we manage the cycle when things occur to capitalize on building in bear markets and accumulating in bull markets. Um, but again, we'll, we'll take it day by day, strategy, strategy over ideology each and every one of those days. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what you said there. And I think it's really interesting that you're, you're looking ahead to the next, next halving, right? With Bitcoin, the longer your time horizon, I think it tends to work out better. And something that Blockware's late co-founder, Matt D'Souza, used to say is like, the best miners welcome the halving, right? Because it forces your competition to capitulate. And that's an interesting concept of buying distressed facilities. I hadn't thought about that, right? Everybody thinks, oh, buy Bitcoin when it's cheap, buy ASICs when miners are capitulating. But buying those sites makes a lot of sense, right? Because it takes a while to build them out. So if you can get one that's fully furnished and ready to, to plug in some machines, that, that's really a, a great idea. Hopefully Absolutely. the spot ETF gets approved in, in October as well. Do you think that's likely or if you know if, if you had to do probabilities, do you think it's more likely to get approved in October or next year? I think the October is a flip of a coin. I do think it'll get approved, you know, 
no, like the, the final deadlines, at least as they're posted, and you never know, obviously regulators can ignore their own deadlines, unlike the rest of us. But um, I, I think it will get approved. Um, I, I'd say flip a coin for October. Obviously, there was a letter to Congress from the, or a letter to, you know, the SEC and Gensler uh, that went out yesterday saying approve it and approve it now. Um, but the question, like, the SEC has continued to ignore uh, Congress recently. And, um, you know, I hope that that changes and I hope that they act in the way that they should. Um, you know, I, I think the words that they used in court, um, you know, speak for themselves for why the SEC, you know, needs to push this forward. So I don't really dwell on that, but I, I, I'd give it a 50-50, 60-40 that it happens in October. And, and I, you know, I hope I'm being conservative. Um, and if not, I think that it'll still happen within the next, uh, next few months. Yeah, I, I saw a clip of Gensler today, and he acknowledged that Bitcoin was not a security, but for some reason he wouldn't confess that it's a commodity, which was very strange. Another similar... Territory game, so, yeah. Yeah. Another similar catalyst is the FASB accounting rule change, mm -hmm. and this specifically affects public miners like yourself. Can you briefly explain what that was for people who are unfamiliar, and then has this had any effect on your business so far? No, no, it hasn't had any effect. You know, the rules have to be, you know, fully adopted before they can do it. Um, and, and as part of that, there may or may not be the ability to early adopt some of these things, um, which the whole industry and I think public companies in general, general welcome. So here, here's what it means. Right now, when you hold Bitcoin, it gets treated as an intangible, um, basically the same a patent would, right? And the rules that apply to patents require that anytime you it's impaired, you have to write it down. You can never write it back up. You can only write it down. So let's, let's think about patents for a minute. When would that make sense? Let's say you have a pharmaceutical patent and a competitor comes out with a new drug and now that patent's not worth anything anymore. Nobody wants it. So you would say, oh, you know, shucks, that happened. We got to write it down. It's worth... 50 cents on the dollar, it's worth zero, right? That makes perfect sense. There's natural measurement points, there's natural events, and it's a long-term impact um, that, that, that it makes sense. You, to apply the same rules to Bitcoin makes no sense at all. So really the rules you know, are written and you know, the, 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 the way they're being implemented is you look at the lowest price of Bitcoin on any given day and you write it down. Well, Bitcoin is a volatile asset, you know, it goes up tomorrow, it goes down the next day, it goes up after that. But the Bitcoin you wrote down last Thursday never gets written back up. So you get to the end of the quarter and, you know, I'll, I'll just use like, you know, last month we had over 1600 Bitcoin on the balance sheet. All of those were written down to the lowest price. If Bitcoin goes to $40,000 tomorrow and my financial report on 930, we'll report them all at the lowest price um, that they were at when we held them. So instead of being reported at a value of 40,000, which is its real value, if I sold it that very day, I would report it at, you know, almost half that value. Um, and, and that's a problem. It's, it's a problem not only for miners to demonstrate real value that we hold on our balance sheets, but, you know, let, let's take Tesla as an example, right? They put a bunch of Bitcoin in the balance sheet, which, you know, they did, um, when they have to write it down and it's a $300 million write-off because they had, you know, a very large amount or micro strategies, huge write downs. When Bitcoin goes back up, it stays written down. So this rule change will move it into a mark to market, which means you measure it on your reporting, whatever value it has. You record a gain loss, you know, if it's different than your date of acquisition or the date you mined it. But there's a real benefit there in the sense that it provides actually more accurate representation to users of the financial statements when they read it. Because really, what, what value is it giving the users of financial statements when they read that your Bitcoin balance is valued at $25,000 when it's actually worth $40,000? So this, this is why the rule change is really important. It'll it may be really important for miners, but also it makes it so much easier for 
Apple, Microsoft, any big company to hold Bitcoin in their balance sheet, because if their bet is, hey, Bitcoin's going to go up or I'm going to use it for treasury management, they want to report it the same as cash. They want to report it that it has $100 million of value today, not that, sure, it has $100 million of value, but we have to tell the investors its value is $60 million, right? That's a problem. The new rules will fix it. The sooner that they can get put into place and that the, the uh, public companies can use it, the better. Yeah, it's it's very exciting, and it's kind of it's kind of funny if you think about you know with the BTFP, the the bondholders got to mark up the value of their bonds when they borrowed, but Bitcoin miners and any public company with it on their balance sheet had to mark it down. Yeah, we've got two more more sort of lighthearted questions as we wrap up here. First, I heard you're big into Stoicism and Marcus Aurelius. I've I've dug a little into it, but I'm not like super familiar. What are some of the tenets of Stoicism? And how does it help you both personally and with running Clean Spark? You know, I, I think that so you're right. I, 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 I'm, I'm definitely into philosophy and stoicism in particular. Um, I think that's really what drives home the strategy over ideology, the way I lead the company. So that's, that's the part where it really impacts the company. So if, if you think about like the term amor fati, it means... Uh, love love fate so you basically embrace today you you look at um things as they are Um, you don't wish for them to be different you don't hope for them to be different Um, this impacts how i view bitcoin i view it as it is i look at a lot of data we make our own predictions and you know i hope for the best but i behave now because i'm embracing what now is we hold when we hold we sell when we sell Um, we do the things we do because it's the right strategic move so foundationally that's a tenant that i brought to the company Um, you know there's there's other tenants like momentum mori which is a a foundational piece it it basically you know simplify it you know remember that you're you're mortal or you're gonna die it doesn't mean you live life in a hedonistic way, but it means live your best life. Um, you know, don't, don't behave in a way that if, if it was over tomorrow that you would, you would have regrets. So that's, that's really what it comes out to, you know, want to live today for today, want to maximize the potential for the future. But I, th- I think it's a, it's a very grounded approach to, to life, right? It, it keeps your, you know, keeps anybody's feet on the ground, right? All of us can spend too much time thinking about, oh, if I only, right? So, so much of our lives. I'm sure all of us went through a point in time in college where it was like, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to have the, my, this next job. You know, the world's gonna, just going to be different. We then got our first job and we're like, oh, man, if I do this and you know, work my way up, it's going to be so much better. And, and it's good. We have to have goals. You know, I've always been goal driven. I've always tried to work in reverse, you know, get to the point in the future from where I'm at today. But you can't spend your life dwelling on that. Um, otherwise, you're, there's a point of lack of satisfaction. You'll never be satisfied if you're always hoping and looking for the better thing. Um, and it doesn't mean you can't want it. Like I'm, I'm a huge believer. Um, you, you'll never get what you don't ask for. You're never going to get the goal you don't shoot for. But like at the end of the day, before you go to sleep, like be be happy with the day you just lived. Also, yeah, those those are some wise and humble tenants. I'm definitely gonna think about that because I actually this is my first job out of college, and I'm I'm grateful. Right, I get to talk about Bitcoin all day and and make Bitcoin content. It's it's awesome. And then that that first tenant, I can't remember the Latin phrase or whatever you use there, but it makes me because I like I feel like a lot of people in Bitcoin, they're like they fall into this trap of how the world should be versus mm-hmm. how the world actually is. Like normative economics are like, oh, the Fed shouldn't exist. They shouldn't devalue the currency. Gensler should approve that ETF right away. And it's all this stuff. It's like, well, you just have to deal with the world as it is. You shouldn't you know, spend too much time dwelling on what your, your idealistic vision would be. So that, yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm going to have to dig more into stoicism. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, the phrase is amor fati. So okay. yeah, l- love fate. Gotcha. Yeah. My last question is, it's kind of a, a simple one. What does Bitcoin mean to you? Bitcoin is, it means a lot of different things. Um, 
You know, what I want to preface that is Bitcoin is not a silver bullet, you know. I think we do ourselves a disservice by saying Bitcoin will solve all the problems in the world. Um, and that comes down to because the world is a complex place, right? Um, for me, Bitcoin is a better, it's a better money. It's a better, um, it's just a better system. Um, you know, I've, I, I'm as frustrated as anybody else when it comes to printing money, government debt. I do see it as a, you know, it's, it's an additional taxation. You know, we, we sit here, we pay taxes on money we never even get, right? It's the withholdings up front. And then every time we go to spend it, it's worth less. And we just continue to get kind of grinded down. I think that this is a way to escape that in some way. And, you know, I think it's bigger than that, though, because I think, I think that's how it impacts how I view the use of it, right? And, but I think if you look at how it affects the world at large, it mean, it's going to mean so many things to more people. So I like to look at how what it means beyond me. So that's what it means for me. The, that's how it impacts me. But I think what's more important is the way it can that it can impact and have an impact really on the unbanked, on developing economies, on true runaway inflation like you see in Argentina, right? That is different. Like I'm looking at it from a, I want to be able to have a mechanism to escape the grind. It's a mechanism for other people to have a completely better life. And so I think for me, Bitcoin means more than it means for me. And, and that sounds like a contradiction, but it does. It has, it has a bigger purpose. And I think that's why I'm so passionate about leading this company is because I think that we're, we're, Bitcoin is there for a better world and we're a foundational piece of that. So, you know, on a worldwide basis, I do think that it can solve a lot of problems, not every problem. It's not a silver bullet for energy. It's not a silver bullet for monetary systems. But what it is, is instead, is it is a better system that those that choose to, you know, embrace it and opt in um, can be elevated and can be in, li live a better life. And that's ultimately what it means for individuals, but what it can mean for society is, is a better path forward. That's very well said. I think that's a, a fantastic note to wrap up. Before we depart, where can the audience find you? Where can they find Clean Spark and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, you can find us. We're a public company, so we're you know we're on all the social media channels from from that side. Um, you know, on my side, I I stick to Twitter, so you can find me on Twitter. You know, at Zach K Bradford. Um, you know, lo love to post there. That's where you're going to see. Every, that's the only place I post, I'll put it that way. But the company's on, on every platform. You can also go to our website to learn more, cleanspark.com. And we'd, we'd love to you know, hear from everybody. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, Zach. Hey, appreciate it. Thank you.